Proverbs 18.24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, I love Jay and Doug's willingness to just share a little bit about their friendship with us this morning. I've known these guys for a couple of years, just a few, and I've just appreciated the depths that their friendship went, and they got right to the heart of it in that conversation. It's because of Christ. It's not because these guys are naturally wired the same way, uh, but because of their faith in Christ, they've become friends. Now, if you were to ask either Doug or Jay, have you ever had a friendship like this before, the answer they both would give is, no, I haven't. And I want to suggest this morning that that is a picture or a reflection of our culture today. Friendship tends to only run surface deep. Um, what I mean by that is, yeah, we might have friends around us, even numbers of friends around us, but the depth that that relationship goes is we talk about safe topics, and even if we talk, we tend to not run any deeper in the conversation than the opinion level. Now, the depth that you want to get to in a relationship with someone else is the intimacy level. It's where someone knows you fully and accepts you for who you are. But we don't go there. We don't get into that space with other people. Robert Putnam, uh, to use his language, he says that many of us are bowling alone. And I think that's a vivid picture of the 21st century American culture, whether it has to do with friendship or whether it has to do with community and society that we experience. And I think that this runs contrary to what the Bible tells us about relationships. You see, the Bible endorses deep, transparent, open spiritual friendships. Why? Well, I believe the Bible endorses this because these kind of relationships promote spiritual health, emotional health, and they provide protection to you. Um, as you think about friendship and, and the depths that it can go, we all need a friend that I can trust implicitly. Implicitly. And I need a friend who I trust enough to allow them to offer me criticism. Because we all have blinders. There's things about you that you don't see, and someone from the outside actually has to say it to you. And when you know someone loves you, you'll let them speak at that level in your life. Here's the big idea that I think we're going to see in our passage this morning. Friendship provides real safety. Now, the story we're looking at is 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's the story of David and Jonathan and their friendship. And as we look at this story, we're going to see that this friendship is God's primary means of protection for David at this stage of his life. Now, let's begin by just picking up with where we're at in the story. David has come to the realization that Saul wants him dead. I mean, Saul is fixated on killing David. He is not going to stop until David is six feet under. 
You want to talk about security, where do you turn when the most powerful individual in the nation wants you dead? Where do you go? Well, remarkably, in this story, David turns to Saul's own son, Jonathan, who happens to be, of course, his friend. So we'll pick up 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 through 9. The text reads, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? So David, in this story, is placing himself at great risk by coming to Jonathan, friendship aside. What we're going to see as we unpack this story is that Jonathan is now caught between conflicting loyalties. You have the conflicting loyalties here of father and friend, and father wants to kill friend. And when loyalties collide, we're presented with hard decisions. I mean, there's just some times in life where you can't play the middle anymore. No matter what decision you make, no matter how you proceed in one direction or the other, someone is going to be disappointed with the decision that you make. Now, obviously, Jonathan doesn't love the fact that this collision is happening in his life. Uh, he, he doesn't even want to believe that his father is trying to kill David. It is David presses. Jonathan determines that he needs to hear him out more. And like I said, from David's point of view, this is a position of risk because if you look at the ordering of loyalties in a person's world, people tend to choose father before friend. We have statements out there like family first, and that was as true back then as it is today. So why was it that David felt or believed that he could trust himself with Jonathan? 
Let me ask the, different, the question a little differently. How do you know that you can trust yourself with anyone for that matter? Now, think about it. There are times all throughout life when there is reason to doubt. There are circumstantial reasons to doubt whether or not you can trust yourself with another person. How do I know that I can trust myself with anyone? Now, Dale Ralph Davis asks the question a little differently. He asks the question, how do you spell security? And that's what we want in a relationship. We want security. We want trust. And the answer to that question is C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. Now, I am not a terrible speller, but what we're looking at here is the Bible revealing the real foundation for any relationship of trust and security. Go back with me to verse 8. Look there and notice what David cites to Jonathan. He says, therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. He uses two important theological words as he comes to Jonathan and as he talks about the real foundation of trust. The first word, of course, is covenant. The second word is a Hebrew term, hesed. Now, hesed is translated kindly in the ESV text. It's an important theological word. It's used all over in the Old Testament scriptures. Most fundamentally, the word reminds us in the Old Testament that your ultimate security rests in the very nature of God who is rich in Hasid, loyal love, faithfulness, kindness. Those are all different terms used to translate the, the character of who God is. And also then, if that's God's nature, then it, it sums up the ideal character or lifestyle that God wants from His people. I love how Carolyn Custis James describes the word hesed. She says, it's the way God intended for human beings to live together from the beginning. The love your neighbor as yourself brand of living in active, selfless, sacrificial caring for one another that goes against the grain of our fallen nature. Two parties are involved, someone in desperate need and a second person who possesses the power and the resources to make the difference. Hesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by bone-deep commitment. A loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or ask of that person. They have the freedom to act or to walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation. So what we find in the Bible is that this word hesed and covenant, that these words are corollaries, meaning that one is the natural consequence of the other. And the order works like this. Love gives itself in covenant. You got that? Love 
gives itself in covenant. It gladly promises devoted love in covenant. The covenant partner then, after receiving the covenant, is able to rest in the security of the promise, and they can even come back and make an appeal to the promise. That's why I'm suggesting this morning that the way you spell security is C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. Covenant provides you with certainty, a safe harbor. And that's why in this story, even when loyalties are colliding, because of this covenant, David knows that he can go to Jonathan. Now, with that said, I want us to examine several dynamics about covenant in this story, that this covenant that's born out of Hesed love. Let's begin by making a textual observation. Look at verses 11 and onward. And as you look at these verses, you're going to notice that something happens in the dialogue in this story. Now, the main character in 1 and 2 Samuel is who? It's David, King David. And in this story, the main character is normally the person talking, right? The, the story advances through the dialogue of the main character. But you'll notice in verses 11 through 23 that David becomes silent. I believe the brilliant author who wrote 1 Samuel does this to show us that David can't speak for himself anymore. He needs someone to speak on his behalf, and the person speaking on his behalf in the story is Jonathan, and Jonathan has all the power now. So look at verses 11 to 17. The text says, And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field, and Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But it should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So remember, Hesed motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to ask or expect. They can walk away, whatever decision they make, no harm to their reputation. Remember also that Jonathan holds all of the power right now in the relationship between David and Jonathan. And look at the commitments he makes to David. The first commitment, if Saul has bad intentions, I will tell you. I know that there's a collision in loyalties, and I am willing to for a moment, suspend my loyalty to my father in order to be loyal to you, my friend. That's a big 
transfer of loyalty right there. And let me just say this too, Jonathan knows that he does that at great risk to himself. That's how much Saul hates David. Secondly, Jonathan once again affirms that David is the next rightful king. Now here's what we're going to learn about covenant through these words from Jonathan. The first principle is that Covenant is the vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. Uncommon faithfulness. Now, in Jonathan's time, people in power did not hand the power over to their rival. That's unheard of. No one does that. And they certainly don't trust the next king to be kind to them as they transfer that power over. No, the iron law of the land was this. When a new king came into power, there was a purge. You got rid of the rival. You got rid of all of the rival's relatives. So what Jonathan's doing here is countercultural. It's outside of the norm. And what we learn through his actions is this, that covenant can conquer culture. You know, this iron law of purging your rivals when you step into the kingdom, the kingship, that's not right. It's not how things ought to be. And, and as a believer, Jonathan refused to allow love to be constrained by the cultural norms. We're seeing right here something that we see all over the Bible. You as a believer, for the sake of love, are called to be countercultural. Countercultural. And you know that at any given time as a, gener- as a believer, that you're going to have your own unique set of choices that will be contrary to the norms of the culture. We just finished reading the 21 days of prayer and as we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was setting up a series of principles through that sermon that were countercultural. I love the, the statements that he makes in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You know what Jesus is saying there? You've heard that it's said that it's culturally normal that you should hate your enemies. If someone does something to you, you get even, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you get the vengeance that you want. But I'm saying to you, reject that part of the culture. Be different. Let love work out in this situation. Instead of retaliating, learn how to be kind and gracious to the person who has offended you. That's countercultural. There's always going to be spaces where biblical faithfulness does not compute with the times. I was just thinking about that this week when it comes to relationship. And a thought that came to my mind is that church membership is countercultural. It's countercultural. I know even as I get into this space of application with church membership, some of us don't come from a background where church membership was emphasized in your church. I also understand that when I get into an area like this, one of my seminary professors said that sometimes when you're applying the Bible, you're 
You're patting the pulpit. And sometimes you're pounding the pulpit because you're like, okay, this is very clear from the Word of God. Well, I'm going to pat for a minute here. I want to suggest that church membership flows naturally out of what we see from the Scriptures. And it certainly doesn't compute nowadays. Uh, In our culture today, we ask the question, why should I formally commit myself to anything? Why? I don't need to do that. That's just rigid formality. And, of course, you know, I, I look through the Bible and There's nowhere in the Bible that says thou shalt become a member of the church. I can't find that anywhere. That's true. But I want to just put this out there. I don't think that's the best way to read your Bible. Because the Bible is not a list of rules as you make your way through it. In fact, as you look through the Bible, a lot of what we learn about the person of God comes to us through narrative, through story. So the Bible is presenting to us a way of life. And if, if I kind of moderate my life by a list of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, then really what I'm doing is I'm creating a list of things that as long as I'm good here, I can kind of do whatever I want there. And I become a Pharisee. So no, there's no rule in the Bible that says thou shalt become a church member, but I also want to suggest there was no rule in the Bible where it said, Jonathan, thou shalt commit a covenant with David. Yet, as I look at the story of David and Jonathan, and I look at the Bible as a way of life, I see a deep, spiritual, biblical character in the person of Jonathan. In fact, I want to suggest to you that's next level biblical, faithful character as we see here in the text. Because Jonathan understands this. He recognizes that if he only commits to David, or if he doesn't commit to David, then their relationship remains surfacy. It never goes deep. A relationship goes deep when I formalize it. When I commit to it, when I say, I commit to these things to you. And that's why our culture is so messed up at the level of commitment right now. Because we don't make commitments. And even when we do, we always want an escape clause to our commitments. But that's not going to lead or produce the kind of faithfulness, the real vibrant kind of faithfulness that you see in the Scriptures. And I'm suggesting that church membership does just that. Covenant is a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. It is a vehicle for marriages that last until death do us part. It's a vehicle that creates a commitment within parents where they say, you know what, I'm going to have this child of mine. I'm going to raise them in the Lord. We'll be in church every Sunday. I'm going to pray with them at night. I'm going to read the scriptures to them. It's the kind of vehicle that leads us to be salt and light in the community. No one has to go out and love the community. But when I commit to that in the Lord and and I put feet, I don't just talk about loving the community, but I actually go and love the community, that's uncommon. We live in a world where people virtue signal today. They philosophize. I love the idea of helping people. Did you help anyone? No. 
We need that uncommon kind of faithfulness, and that is only born out of real commitment. Let's look at another principle. Covenant creates clarity when your loyalties become confused. Now remember, Jonathan was presented with conflicting loyalties. Who should I choose, dad or David, father or friend? And how do I make sense of loyalty when the interests of two parties you care about collide? Now recently I've been making my way through a book by an author, Eric Felton. The name of the book is Loyalty, the Vexing Virtue. In the book, he notes the dilemma that's involved with loyalty. On the one hand, he he notes we all need loyalty, right? We need it. He says this, loyalty is essential to the most basic things that make life livable. Without loyalty, there can be no love. Without loyalty, there can be no family. Without loyalty, there can be no friendship. Without loyalty, there can be no commitment to community or country. And without those things, there can be no society. But have you ever experienced David or Jonathan's dilemma? Have you ever been in the space where you were forced to make a choice between two parties and you knew that you couldn't please both? Now, Felton says this, the virtue has a tragic flaw. Our loyalties are always getting hopelessly tangled and compromised. Even if we want to commit ourselves to being true, we can never escape the conflicting demands that our contradictory loyalties create. Here's the bottom line. He says you can be loyal to a friend. You can be loyal to your family. You can be loyal to a principle or an ideal. You can be loyal to God. But can you be loyal to all at the same time? Just try it. Try it. Now, Jonathan, of course, is right in the dead center of this. He goes to his father and he seeks to execute the plan that he and David had conspired together. It's the New Moon Festival. Now, on the first night, they're supposed to all feast together, and Saul notices that David is not present at the table. He says, okay. There, there must be some excuse for this, and he writes it off. But day two, they come and eat around the table again, and now Saul gets frustrated, and he asks Jonathan, where's David? And Jonathan gives him the excuse that they have prepared. Now look at Saul's reaction in verses 30 and 31. He says, the text says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And he's attacking Jonathan with three powerful motivators. He's saying, this brings shame to you, it brings guilt to you, and you're not thinking through the lens of greed. And I'll tell you, those motivators, shame, guilt, greed, have a way of causing people to break their commitments. I mean, who wants their reputation called into question? What son wants to be told by his father that he's betraying his mother? And of course, Saul's saying to him, you could have the kingdom. 
What are you doing here? You could have all of this power and prestige and authority. It could all be yours. But you're going to give it all away to the son of Jesse? Now notice that Saul can't even use David's name anymore. I mean, he hates him. How is Jonathan going to respond? Well, he responds by presenting one of the purest examples of loyalty that we see in human history. He says to his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. If loyalty can become hopelessly tangled, how do you find clarity when loyalties collide? What we're seeing from this passage is that covenant creates clarity. Now, your first covenant is with God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were brought into a new covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. And your first covenant being with God then means that He must have your first loyalty. The ordering of your loyalties must always begin with Jesus at the top of your list of loyalties. And we see that with Jonathan here. Saul is asking Jonathan to break God's will. He's telling him, do something duplicitous, do something murderous to protect your own throne, your own name. And Jonathan knows the right ordering of his loyalties. He knows it's God first. Not second, not third, not fourth. First. Now Jesus taught us that there will be times when loyalties will collide, even at the level of family. Remember what he said to his disciples? He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. Now, the first time I ever read that passage, I was like, what in the world is Jesus telling me here? Is he saying that I need to hate my mom and dad? Well, that's not what he's saying there. He's using hyperbolic language, okay? That's exaggerated language to say that you need to rightly order your loyalties. He's saying in this passage, listen, you can't truly follow me if you put your family before me. You can't truly follow me if you resign yourself to partial obedience in order to appease another loyalty in your life. I have to be first. And when you put me first, then you can work out all of those other loyalties. Like, how do I be a loyal husband or mother or daughter or citizen or friend from there? 
And as we're looking at this, there's also a principle from the scriptures that is especially important for young people to hear right now. You see, when you're younger, and I'm talking young in the sense of maybe you're in your late teens and early 20s and even early 30s, you have a lot of big decisions that you are making right now that really set up the rest of your life. Like, who am I going to marry? What kind of person do I want to be? Where am I going to work? Who do I want to work for? What kind of education do I want to pursue? And Paul, he said this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He said, Do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. Now when you're a young person and you have the ability to make your decisions, that really means then don't create conflicts within your loyalties as you're making those big decisions. Don't marry someone who isn't going to love the Lord in the same way you love the Lord. Don't go and work for a place that was go- is going to challenge you to do unethical things before the Lord. You don't want to put yourself in a position where your loyalties are constantly colliding. You want alignment there. I love the Lord. She loves the Lord. We're not going to have issues in that level. This place really promotes things that I believe prosper God's values. Now, some of us, of course, don't always get to make that decision. We can't choose where we're born. Or maybe we've made a decision and we're in a marriage where there is some conflict there when it comes to the faith level. How do I deal with that? As I look at this story with Jonathan, he didn't have a choice who his father was, but he was able to operate with total moral clarity because he put God first. And guess what? When you do that, God works out the complexities from there in your life. It's not always easy, but he works it out. Let's look at the last part of the story, and we're going to conclude with one final principle You'll pick up at verse 35. The story says, In the morning, Jonathan went into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed And Jonathan went into the city.
I, I think that Eugene Peterson makes a great observation of this passage which sets up our final principle. Sometimes when you're studying the Bible, you need to study a passage at what is called the syntax level. That means the choice of words, um, the meaning of words, how often words are used. That's the syntax level. But sometimes you need to look at the discourse level. So that's how the whole story kind of plays out as it was written by the writer. Now, 1 Samuel 18 through 20, I want to suggest to you, is a contained unit, a contained thought. It begins with 18, 1 through 4. And there, that is called David and Jonathan's friendship. It begins there. And then, we go all the way to chapter 20, verse 42. And again, let me just read that again to you. Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. So what we have here is this, this single thought bracketed by covenant friendship. And what's in the middle? Saul fomenting venomous hatred intent, and intent to murder David. You see what the Bible is showing us here? It's showing us that covenant can do something else powerful. Covenant has the ability to bracket and contain evil. God uses the friendship of Jonathan and David to do just that. Think about David's situation. Had God not provided Jonathan, do you think David would have made it through this plot? Probably not. But God raises up a Jonathan in his life. And, you know, this Jonathan that God raises up, it's incredible when you think about it. Jonathan, again, really doesn't get too much out of this friendship, out of being loyal to David. If you look at the rest of his life, this is probably the last time that the two ever have a meaningful conversation. The remainder of his life, he's following his father, and he's fighting Philistines on behalf of his father, and then he, he dies with his father. But Peterson says this, and I agree with him. The circumstances didn't count, cancel out the covenant. Rather, the covenant was used in the purposes of God to overcome the circumstances. And that church is a powerful reason why you need to commit yourself to people. You need to commit ourselves to things like church membership, and I'm patting the pulpit there. We need to commit ourselves to deep spiritual friendships, and the pat's getting a little stronger now, and we need loyalty centered on Christ, and now I can pound the pulpit this morning. As you think about applying that, we might ask ourselves the question, or we might think to ourselves by way of application, I need to find a Jonathan. That's true, you do need that. You need the friend who sticks closer than a brother. But I want to flip the script in your mind and ask you, are you willing to be a Jonathan? Are you willing to show God's chesed, loyal, 
covenant love to another person, are you willing to show this level of uncommon faithfulness? We all need the friend who sticks closer than a brother, but we first need to be the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Why? Well, it provides security. It's countercultural. It's not always easy or convenient. However, as we see in the story, God uses this kind of loyalty, this kind of commitment to deepen His people, further His purposes, and even protect against evil. That's what we're talking about here. So as we consider this, I want to ask you to bow your heads with me and let's take this to the Lord. Father, as we go before you, this morning, as we look at the story of Jonathan, we marvel over the character of this man of God. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and of course, in 1 Samuel 20, that friend is Jonathan. Lord, as your people, I, just, I, I acknowledge before you that chesed and covenant are from your own beautiful mind. We need these things. We need to be a people of commitment, and we need to commit ourselves deeply to one another. If I was to put it in Jesus' words in the New Testament, he said, love one another. Agape one another. And when you love one another like that, the world will know that you are my disciples. So we ask that we would be that kind of people. Lord, I want to be a Jonathan. I know people in this church want to be a Jonathan. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.